Hello, and welcome to Pause Pop, positively pop culture, where we talk about things we love enthusiastically and without guilt. I'm Carrie Gessner. And I'm KW Taylor. And today, we're going to talk about board games, Little Women, and we rewatched the pilot episode of The X-Files. KW, I know you're super into board games, so mm-hmm. tell me all about them. Tell me the ones you like and everything. Everything. Okay. <laughs> everything. Okay. Well, first, let me ask you, are you, do you like board games? I do like board games. I just don't have the opportunity to play them that often. Yeah. I think that's a common problem because there you need a certain number of players you need different numbers of players for different games you need sometimes a lot of time like something like monopoly can take all night but i think that when you have a good set of players and a good game and maybe a long afternoon it can be a super fun way to spend your time the thing i like about board games unlike i do a lot of role-playing gaming too but usually a good board game you can get going the first time you've looked at it and have a totally productive session and you don't need to know a lot of things and you don't usually need to do a lot of math, which I always appreciate. (laughs) Although there's often, I keep going back to Monopoly, but there's some math in Monopoly, which can be occasionally challenging. Since I've been talking about that one a little bit, I want to pause here and discuss the controversy of whether Monopoly is a fun game or not. (laughs) Do you think Monopoly is a fun game? I do. Yeah. Okay. Do you not? No, I do too. I love Monopoly. I cannot usually get people to want to play Monopoly with me. Oh, I'll play Monopoly with you next time we see each other. Awesome. We'll do that. I really love Monopoly. I always have since I was little. I like that there's different editions which have different little little extra rules or rule changes. And I love that it's a game that you can have house rules too. Mm -hmm. So, oh, maybe you don't agree with house rules. When you play it, do you do house rules? Well, my mom hates it. So we haven't played it in forever. Okay. Well, and why does she hate it? Because I bet it's a common reason people hate it. I think she just thinks it takes too long. Yeah. I think that's part of the problem. There are certain editions that have ways to speed it up. And I think there's certain rules that are in the official rules that that make it go faster that people are not aware of, like auctions. If you land on a property and you don't want to buy it or you don't have enough money for it, you're supposed to put it up for auction which will make the game go faster because more properties will get purchased more quickly. Mm -hmm. Okay. I don't know that a lot of people realize that rule. But yeah, I mean, there's house rules about free parking and other other things, which I think makes it fun. And the other reason I like it is that the negotiation element, I think, makes it different from a really standard board game where there's just specific rules and you just follow those rules. The negotiation turns it into a little bit more of like a mini RPG, in my opinion, Because you can decide, do I want to be really tough this time playing it? Or do I want to be lenient and try to be a good negotiator? So Mm -hmm. I think that's fun about it. Can I pause and ask a question about Monopoly? Yes, absolutely. Have you played Ms. Monopoly? I have heard about that. I have not played it. What Have you tried to play it? I have not played it. I think I just found out about it a little while ago and I was very intrigued. Yeah. Well, okay. Let me... Maybe give some thoughts on that. I think it's a neat idea. I think the basic idea of that version is that female players have an advantage and it's trying to empower the idea of women run businesses and and whatnot. And I think that's really cool. I also, though, have a theory about Monopoly that if you were to use it to demonstrate how capitalism can be sometimes a dangerous system, we don't recognize the fact that Monopoly is is a socioeconomic game about 
the fact that the more money you have, the more money you can get. Mm-hmm. And if you run out of money and are a renter instead of a builder, you will never win the game. And as a person who teaches, sometimes I have thought before about creating a version of Monopoly called Monopoly of Oppression, where you actually give players character types that exemplify the problems with structuralized inequality, (laughs) so that essentially it will illustrate that a white man will always win the game. Okay. I mean, that would be very interesting. I don't know how fun that would be. I don't think it would be fun. This would not be to be fun. This would be... <laughs> anyway, I never actually got to use that when I when I teach, but maybe someday. But so I think Monopoly has some interesting things that can be a common commentary on society and culture. But other games that I like, like there's two other main types of game styles that I like, either trivia games or games that are collaborative instead of competitive. Mm-hmm. And with trivia games, I really love all different kinds of Trivial Pursuit. I think that can really sharpen your skills, and I just think those can be pretty fun. But collaborative games, you know, we always think about the players of the game being against each other, but in a collaborative game, all the players are working together against the game. And I really like that. So a couple of the collaborative games I really like are Pandemic and Touch of Evil. Ooh. There's a couple of games that are very similar to Touch of Evil based on Cthulhu mythos, okay, Arkham Horror and, and stuff like that. But Pandemic and, and Touch of Evil are my favorites. Pandemic is you're kind of trying to stop the spread of different diseases around the world. Mm-hmm. And in Touch of Evil, you're trying to stop the spread of evil creatures around a town. Okay. Oh, and everybody kind of has a different character type and different skills, and you have to kind of maximize everyone's specific skill set in order to beat the game cool there's one that i have but i unfortunately haven't had the chance to play it yet because like i said you have to get a group of friends together and make sure your schedules line up but there's one called mysterium Mm. have you heard of that no i haven't what is that about i feel like you would like it it's collaborative and you're in a house and one player is a ghost and they can only communicate through images and you as a team have to figure out like who killed them i believe oh that's really cool yeah i like the ghost is helping you and you're helping the ghost kind of (laughs) cool that sounds totally up my alley yeah i like it a different type of game this isn't really just collaborative games but some collaborative games have this element i love games with maps in them and i don't know why (laughs) i love risk and the aforementioned pandemic has the world map and then I also love Ticket to Ride, the little train building game that has different, it's either the US or Europe, or there's a bunch of different types of maps. But I don't know why there's something about like, using the world or a country as your game board. That's really visually satisfying to me. I don't know. Nobody will play Risk with me. That's the other game that I can't really get people to get on because it takes eight years to play <laughs> a single game of Risk. I've actually never played Risk. It's fun. It's not as hard as you would think it would be because you're trying to take over the world and there's battle strategy things and stuff, but it's a little bit more kind of like with Monopoly. It's a little more luck based because you're doing dice rolls, but there are some elements of strategy that you have to keep in mind. It's not even literal geography. It's just being able to see the connections on the board and know that like Australia is semi-isolated and the U.S. has a lot of points of entry, and so being able to have a good visual acuity, I think, helps play that game. So, yeah. Well, I'll play with you if you okay. teach me. 
I will. Yes. I think we need, we need at least two to three more players, but we will okay. make that. If happen. anyone wants to volunteer, we'll have a little game night. Awesome. Great. <laughs> Sounds good. If anybody has recs for other board games that you think we would like, send those to us in Twitter or email. And I might do later in a later episode, if I get a new board game, I might do just a review Ooh. of that individual game. I've got a brand new game that I got for Christmas, but it needs four players and I have not had time to try to find two more people in my house. I might try to make that happen super soon so that I can review it though. I have two questions. Yes. Have you ever tried playing a board game over Skype or something? Like if you've got multiple players who are not in the same geographic area? Well, okay. I think that I have played, there used to be a little, it wasn't literally Skype, but there was like a little app version that you could connect friends to playing Flux together, which is a card game. Okay. I don't even know if that still exists, but I used to do that. I mean, that's kind of what you're doing with Words with Friends in a certain way, but it's not, you don't have a voice or video chat. Right, but more real time. Right. Like, I play Words with Friends, but I don't have to play right away. Right, exactly. And you beat me all the time, so. (laughs) It's because my dad just thrashes me all the time and I had to get better and I had to get really strategic and then I just can't shut it off for other games. <laughs> I will tell you the thing I'm really bad at words with friends and I am excellent at Scrabble. Like I Interesting. beat people at Scrabble in person all the time and what? I have some kind of trouble with words with friends. I don't know. Anyway, that's huh. not, neither here nor there. <laughs> There's a different strategy to it too. So that's part of it. What's the different strategy? Well, it's kind of about what's available to you to, because Words with Friends, that you're right, that's turn-based, but it's not real time. So if you want to spend hours planning a single move, you can. Yeah, my dad and I definitely do that. Yeah. And I don't, I think that's why I lose because it's like, I don't have that kind of time. <laughs> and with, with Scrabble, you you know, you're there with people in person and it's like, okay, and you really only have the words in your own brain at your disposal unless you check something in the dictionary. With words with friends, you can test words out on the board, even if you're not cheating. That's true. Yeah. You can test words out on the board that you think that's not even a word, but if it accepts it, then you can play it. Right. And you don't really have that availability in Scrabble. So your your vocabulary is limited, which means that if you have a good vocabulary, you're going to do well at Scrabble. But I have a good vocabulary, but I'm not, I'm impatient, and I'm not going to spend 25 hours on a single move on Words with Friends. Right. And I'm not going to test out every single combination of letters on the board and make a word that I feel like, you know, uh, you know, whatever, some giant made up sounding word, even though it's a (laughs) real word, it's like, would you really have come up with that word? Probably not. So yeah, so I think that's the way that it's harder I don't know. That all makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. I still like to do it. It's fun. And I I actually really enjoy playing the solo mode against the little people. That's fun. Oh, you were talking about Skype. Yes. I've never tried to do that. I think that I know some friends of mine use Discord to do RPGs. Right. But you, if you wanted to do that, you almost both need to have a version of the game on your end. And then whatever moves are made, you'd have to like replicate them unless you wanted one person to just have the board on a camera and use that board. So, Hmm. but I think it could absolutely be done for sure. Yeah. Something to think about. Yeah. Okay. One last question. What's the weirdest board game you've played? This may not be the weirdest, but I've lately been playing 
a Jeopardy board game. I've played that with my parents a couple times. And it had a lot of weird setup involved. Like you had to create the little screen of TV screens, basically. <laughs> and so it's it's only weird in that it's it replicates the game show experience a lot more closely than I thought it would. Okay. But that was, I mean, it was, it made it really cool. Oh, actually, this was interesting. I like Clue, but I feel like Clue, you kind of max out on Clue. Like, it's sort of like playing tic-tac-toe past 10 years old. You kind of figure it out, and it's no longer challenging. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> I love Clue. Well, I love Clue, too, but I feel like it's it's a little samey, the base edition. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. But not that long ago, I played Harry Potter Clue with my husband and two of our friends, and we played it at a at a coffee house or something where they just had a copy there and we're like, all right, let's just play this. That'll be fun. But it actually has all these extra rules that make it really, really fun and weird and much more challenging. So okay, I totally, I don't know if that makes it the weirdest game I've ever played, but it definitely was surprising how different it was. And so I kind of like things like that where it's like a different edition of something you've done before. In Ticket to Ride, the European map has some different rules, which are which are neat. So I like things like that, where it's like maybe something you've done before, but oh, there's also um, there's a version of Pandemic that's Cthulhu themed, where you're trying to instead of stop a bunch of diseases, you're trying to stop elder gods from taking over the world. <laughs> that's pretty cool. That is pretty weird because they have little figurines of the little monsters and stuff. So. <laughs> neat. Well, great. Thanks. And you recently, you got really, really interested recently in the new adaptation of Little Women. And I think that sparked your interest in Little Women generally. Is that right? Kind of. It's always been on my radar. Um, I really like the 1994 movie Mm -hmm. with Winona Ryder and Susan Sarandon, uh, which was directed by Gillian Armstrong. So I've always liked that. And then in the mid 2000s, a musical came out. Sutton Foster was in it, who is great. She's a fantastic singer, and I really like that soundtrack. So, like, I I know the story. I really like it. But when they announced this one, I was kind of like, oh, I don't think we need another adaptation of it. Especially a very faithful adaptation, you know? Mm -hmm. I think if we keep adapting the same stories, they need to change in some way and become more inclusive so when they announced this i was like oh not super interested in it but my housemate really likes to go see the oscar nominated movies so we went to see it a week or two ago and i cried so many times oh <laughs> like it was a good crying though yeah i really really liked it i think it i think it's structured in a really interesting way because it's got a lot of back and forth between kind of the present timeline and when they were growing up as kids. Mm. So it starts out with Joe. She's in New York and she's a writer. She's trying to get her stuff published. And the very first scene is her selling a story. And she runs out of there with so much joy and is like running down the street back to her boarding house. And she can write to her, her sisters and be like, I sold a story. And it's as a writer, I think we all all writers have connected with Joe in some level. Would you agree with that? Oh, absolutely. I (laughs) think Joe is a little bit the 19th century patron saint of writers and women writers in particular. Yeah. Right, right, right. So I thought they did the writing stuff really well. Mm -hmm. They showed her elation when, when she sells things and, and that 
kind of gut reaction to be defensive against criticism, which we all have, and we all have to (laughs) soften a little bit. And there's obviously the really emotional scene where Amy burns her manuscript. (laughs) And it's like the worst thing that's ever happened to Joe. I feel like Every single writer has, we haven't lost a whole manuscript, but when we even lose one page, it's kind of like, oh my God, that was the best page ever. I'm never (laughs) going to get it back. So that scene held a lot of emotion for me. But one of the things I really loved was the little details about her as a writer. Mm. Like she'd be writing and, and she'd have to shake out her hand because it was getting cramped or she switched to the other hand and I'm like, I don't, I could never do that. But yeah. (laughs) And there was this one scene where she's writing the actual Little Women story. She's up in her attic and she's spreading all the pages out on the floor. Oh. <laughs> and I was like, what writer has not done something similar? You know? Yeah. So I just thought it really represented what it's like to be a writer and to be a creative person and, and kind of navigating that. Let's see. I mean, obviously, it's very focused on the sisters and... I'm always interested in in stories about sisters, so I I've always loved that. But I thought I did a really good job of just giving a little bit more nuance to each of the sisters. Mm-hmm. There's a scene uh, before get Meg gets married, and Joe is like, "You don't have to do this. We can we can run away. I'll support us with writing, and you can be on the stage." And Meg says. Just because my dreams are different from yours doesn't mean they're unimportant. Yeah. And it took me as a person a really long time to realize that. So I thought it was really, I don't know. I just really like that because it's true. Our futures and goals don't all have to look the same, but we should all have, you know, the opportunity to pursue those goals. So, and we need to, you know, treat each other gently and with understanding. And Joe definitely learns that lesson. Yeah. Another thing that I was really struck by was the amount of physical affection between the characters. It's really interesting because I think when I think of period pieces, I think a lot of Jane Austen and how men and women hardly ever touch. But this one is so like homey, if I could say that, mm-hmm. because, you know, they're sisters. But then Laurie comes in the picture and John Brooke and everyone's just like hugging each other all the time and shaking hands and I just thought that was a really I don't know if this is true but I kind of linked it to the fact that it was directed by a woman Mm -hmm. and there is kind of that openness of emotion and you're allowed to to be emotional and to show that you care about other people but I don't know it could have been actors choices who knows well here's an interesting little like article idea There's been so many film adaptations of this book, but I'm sure other than the 1994 version and this version, they're probably all otherwise directed by men. It would be interesting to see what is the incidence and circumstance surrounding depicted physical affection amongst different genders and different characters um, in all these adaptations. That's true. That's a good idea. And I know there's one from a couple years ago that was set in modern day, but it's otherwise the same thing. And I, I know Leah Thompson was in it, but I don't know if she actually, she might've actually directed it. Leah Thompson. That's awesome. It's from 2018. It's directed by Claire Niederpruim and it's, yeah, it's set in present day. Interesting. Okay. I'll have to look that up. Yeah. 
I'll get back to you about it. But that's really, that's really cool. Um, I would definitely be interested in doing that. The last thing I have to say mm-hmm. is I've been told by you <laughs> that I cannot spoil the ending. No. But. <sighs> Don't. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not going to spoil it. But I'm trying to figure out how to word it because you and I have talked a little bit about how the ending that Joe gets mm-hmm. can be disappointing. Yes. In the book, you mean. In the book. Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. In the film, I'm just going to say they do it in a really interesting way that leaves things a little bit more open-ended than normal. Okay. That's all I will say. Okay. But, well, okay, I will say one more thing, (laughs) (laughs) which is just that I really adored this movie. You've seen the Keira Knightley Pride and Prejudice, right? Yeah, not not recently, but yeah. It's got big Pride and Prejudice vibes like that, Mm, like just... And the kind of chaos of having a household with multiple daughters. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, while I was watching the movie, I really adored that. But uh, the whole time, the end was kind of hanging over my head. And I was like, mm, oh. you know, I'm always sort of disappointed at the end. And then the end came, and I was like, wow. <laughs> okay. This is one of my favorite movies ever, I think. Oh. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, excellent. So we watched The X-Files. You watched it very like today i watched it a couple weeks ago and i'm excited to talk about this so can we start off with just knowing your history with the x-files well okay so this aired on fox from september of 1993 until may of 2002 but then they had a short 10th and 11th season that were on in 2016 and 2018 respectively there also were two theatrical films based on the series and I didn't start watching it regularly when it was first on. Um, I would watch it very, very occasionally, and I liked it, but it has a lot of complex mythology. And so I didn't actually watch the series all the way through until I started that after it went off the air, and it was probably around 2004, I started renting it from Netflix on disc. (laughs) And I took so long watching it that I... By the time I was finishing it, it was like streaming and Roku and all that was already a thing. So I just finished it on streaming on Netflix. But there were chunks of time in there when I would watch, like I would binge it in big, long chunks and stuff. And I saw, I I might have seen both movies in the theater, actually. And I certainly was very excited about the little revival seasons recently, which were, I thought, okay. But I would say that I like it a lot. I would not say that I'm a super fan or anything. Okay. And it has been a really, I feel like I saw the pilot when it first aired. Okay. Like that night. So I don't know that I've rewatched the pilot since 1993. So Gotcha. For me, I've never really watched The X-Files. I tried watching the 2016 revival and didn't really get into it. As someone who really loves sci-fi and fantasy, I always thought I should be a fan of The X-Files, so I've tried to start it a few times, but it was always a little bit too dated for me, so I never actually watched the the pilot all the way through until today. Okay. Yeah. And just for those who aren't familiar, it's a sci-fi drama. It mostly deals with issues surrounding UFOs and aliens. But over time, there's other types of weird happenings. It's basically about an FBI, two FBI agents who work on 
cases that are considered either extraterrestrial, paranormal, unexplainable. They're not normal criminal cases like regular FBI agents would work on. Mm -hmm. So in the pilot episode, David Duchovny plays special agent Fox Mulder, who works on these cases, and he's kind of exiled to the basement of the FBI. Yeah. And Dana Scully is a medical doctor who is working for the FBI, and she kind of gets assigned to work with Mulder and determine if there's any legitimacy to these cases. So the case in the pilot is found Oregon, where there's a woman found dead in the forest with some marks on her back. And the reason the FBI is called is because she's the fourth person in her high school class. They're not in high school. It's like 10 years later. But she's the fourth person from their high school class who has died under mysterious circumstances. And the FBI has been out before, but they didn't really find anything. So Mulder and Scully go out now and they actually exhume the third victim and they find that his body's real weird and it's like deformed and he's got like a large head and there's something, there's some kind of weird implant in his nasal cavity. So of course Mulder is like aliens and Scully's like, well, let's, let's pump the brakes on that one. It's probably (laughs) (laughs) So they continue to investigate and they find some of the other high school classmates, one of whom is in a coma and one of whom is, is in a wheelchair. And the people in this group kind of keep getting called to the forest. And the woman in the wheelchair gets killed in a car accident. But the guy who hit her is like, she was walking across the road and Mulder's like, what now? (laughs) (laughs) And then they go to the forest and they find the guy in the coma. What what was he even doing? Was he like abducting? I don't know. I think he was, he was doing something weird. (laughs) Yeah. Sorry. Okay. There was a part when they were, looking at something in the area that the kids kept getting abducted from the Mulder and Scully lose nine minutes after they see this big flash of light too. Mm -hmm. And that was something that kept happening to alien abductees generally. So they're starting to think, or he's starting to think that it's definitely alien abduction related. Right. And the woman who was killed, her watch stopped and Scully thought it was evidence of this lost time somehow. So they go to the forest and they find Billy, who's been the gentleman in the coma, but he's awake and he is trying to abduct, I think, the medical examiner's daughter and Mulder and Scully basically stop that. It's a little bit anticlimactic, I think. (laughs) Yeah, I was kind of surprised by that. It kind of ends with one of the victims is hypnotized and is talking about, yeah, we were abducted on graduation night and tested by aliens. And then when the tests failed, the aliens started killing us. And Scully still has this implant that she found on the one exhumed body. And then all the case files on this case go missing. The only thing that was climactic, I guess, because it did feel like, oh, okay, well, whatever. (laughs) This mysterious character that we don't have a name for yet but he appears to be he appears at this point to be an fbi agent and in the series he ends up getting nicknamed the smoking man or the cigarette smoking man because you always see him smoking cigarettes 
Um, he has this implant and he's putting it in this weird evidence room that seems like it's in the Pentagon. And it just feels like he's filing it away to, to bury it, to hide it, mm. which I thought that was pretty creepy. Yeah. And I guess one small piece of closure is that Scully's report to the higher ups is like, no, Mulder's cases can't really be substantiated. But I also can't say that it's a bunch of BS, I guess. Yeah. So I think she kind of comes around to saying, hey, there's maybe something here and I'm going to stick around and, and see what it is. Mm-hmm. Earlier in the episode, also, their motel gets caught on fire or something. She loses her computer and her initial report at one point, doesn't she? Yeah. Yeah. So there's this idea that people are trying to conspire against them to make their investigation not really come to fruition. So part of it is wondering whether Mulder's ideas can't be substantiated, but because they're getting thwarted, they're getting evidence stolen and hidden and destroyed. So they can't do any of that. There's also a scene where Mulder tells Scully that his little sister disappeared when he was 12 and everyone thinks that she was abducted by aliens and she's never been found. And that that has made him, he used to be a much more kind of on the track toward a normal FBI career, but he got more and more imbued with wondering about what happened to his sister, that that's what sent him down this road of being sort of spooky and weird and not being taken seriously. Yeah. So what did you think of the episode as a whole? I thought, well, first of all, not about the episode, but um, I wanted to mention that Jillian Anderson and David Duchovny look like infants. (laughs) They are so young. Jillian Anderson was 25 when this episode was made. Which makes me feel like, could she, like, logistically, if Dana Scully is supposed to be about the same age as the actress playing her, could she have gone to college and medical school and Quantico (laughs) and be a, you know, medical doctor, FBI agent who's good enough to work with another field agent at 25? And I don't know. I know she's supposed to be really, really smart, but I'm just saying. And (laughs) David Duchovny, you think... I think people think that Mulder is so much older than Scully, but he was 33. He's not really very much older than her. And they just both look ridiculously young. Um, Having seen all of the series and also tons of other stuff that both of them have been in, I don't think of them being this young. And it was just like, oh my goodness, they're they're so small. So they just looked really cute. (laughs) So that's my shallow, funny thing. I was very underwhelmed, though, to be honest. I, it's too bad this was the pilot because this is not the best episode of the show and it's not even that memorable in many ways. Mm-mm. Yeah. So what did you think? I agree. It's it's a little slow, mm-hmm. which I don't always mind because you have to get to know the characters. But my thought throughout the whole thing was kind of, I think in order to really get pulled into it, you have to be charmed by David Duchovny. Like you have to be willing to give him the benefit of the doubt. And I just really wasn't, (laughs) I guess. (laughs) So I was more along with Dana Scully. Yeah. I don't know. There was not a lot for me personally to latch onto that would make me want to keep watching. And I think that's why I've had so much trouble even finishing this episode because I've tried to watch it a couple times in the past. Yeah. Let me say, there were parts of it that I did enjoy. I thought they were already starting to have an interesting working relationship. 
Some bits were filmed, interestingly. There was a couple weird scenes where they were sort of stuck in the rain, and I thought the way those were filmed, it it made it have a little more drama, Mm -hmm. and I thought they looked pretty. And I kind of dig shows that are filmed in, like, the Vancouver area because it's just very lush and, and pretty, and they notoriously filmed in Canada. If I hadn't already watched it all the way through and knew it was going to get better, I can see, yeah, maybe not keeping on with it. But I actually, I wanted to not watch more so that I knew I was only talking about the pilot today. But I, there was part of me that was like, oh, you know, you know, it gets better. Watch some more. It's great. <laughs> and I think I might watch some more. And many episodes ago, we talked about Fringe. You being a fan of Fringe and other shows like that, I feel like you would actually get into it if you kept going with it. But it might be a case where you might need to look at some kind of list for the best episodes if you're going to just skip around. Okay. Yeah. That could be interesting because I don't, I know it's got a lot of seasons. I don't really want to sink that much time into it. But I could definitely, you know, pick five of the best episodes and, and watch those and see how I felt. Thank you for bringing up Fringe because, yes, it, it reminds me a lot of Fringe, but I love Fringe. So I think, <laughs> I know, I think it just kind of pales in comparison to, to Fringe because I regard Fringe so highly. Fringe has the benefit of better production values. Mm-hmm. And when I rewatched Fringe, I was surprised that even though technology is different in the early seasons, it's filmed so beautifully that you don't really get lost in that. This episode of The X-Files, it felt like the early 90s. And, you know, that's fine. That's There's no problem with that. But there were certainly different not just different fashion, hair, and cell phone styles that you've got to get past, but different storytelling styles. And it just doesn't feel very tight. I will say that it gets better at that. And there are some episodes that are just really, really stellar. I felt too like both of them, even though both of them had done some acting before this, they did feel very green. I think they both get really good as actors through the course of the show. Okay. So if they felt a little wooden... Duchovny was coming off of playing a very strange character on Twin Peaks right before this. So I feel like he hadn't figured out who Mulder is yet. And Mulder gets a lot wittier and more likable as time goes on. Scully also gets a little more relaxed with him. And they, you know, they have a notorious kind of romantic relationship, but they also at their core are friends. And I think that Once they start to get to know each other, it gets better because even though she's still a skeptic and doesn't believe in the woo-woo stuff that he does, she never doesn't respect him and vice versa. Okay. So you see these two very intelligent people who are able to disagree fundamentally, but they also have each other's backs all the time and they really care about each other, which I like stuff like that, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I like that too. I mean, I think, yeah, if you wanted to like explore, I would say find a listicle that is the 10 best episodes of the X-Files and just do that. Because this is also a time in production history of television when seasons for regular network television were crazy long. There are some seasons of this show that are 24 and 26 episodes long. Wow. And that's a lot. That is a lot. Yeah. It's hard to, you know, pull a story out across all those episodes. Yeah. Well, great. I promise you that I will watch a few more episodes, but I will be selective and find some of the best according to the internet (laughs) yes i think that's your best bet (laughs) okay cool (laughs) but we've got some fun stuff coming up next time next time we're going to be talking about the jane austen novel and the new adaptation of that novel sanditon Um, we're also going to talk about the new david lynch short film what did jack do 
and we will be discussing instrumental music. And speaking of instrumental music, our theme music is by Joseph McDade. And you can find me on Twitter at KW Taylor Writer. And me on Twitter at Carrie Gessner. And you can find us together on Twitter at Pause Pop Podcast. If you'd rather email us, you could do that at positivelypopculture at gmail.com. Thanks for listening and join us next time for another episode of Pause Pop.